Can you stand as we read God's word, please? Today's scripture comes out of the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Maybe I'm not supposed to speak. I don't know. Oh, man. Let's just pray and get out of here, okay? Uh, Well, good morning, West Bowles Community Church. My name is David Perez. I'm the youth director here at the church, and it is so good to be up here and uh, sharing God's word with you this morning. Uh, So whether you're tuning in online or you're right here in person, um, we are so glad to have you here. Well, let me start by asking you guys a question. How many of you have either bought or been given an object, something that is extremely important to you? Anyone here have something? Yeah? Yep, I think we all have. Uh, For me... That important object was the very first car I ever owned, which was a 1966 Ford Mustang. You'll see it up here. There it is. Yeah. Yep. I was 16. Man, young. That car, up until about a year ago when we bought, less than a year ago, we bought our place. That thing was the most important thing that I owned. Okay. That was my baby. It was precious to me. Uh, And in the 13 years that I owned that car, uh, I was very cautious because it was so important to me of who I let drive it, okay? So I didn't just hand the keys to anyone. I was very, very selective. In fact, uh, outside of me, there was only four people that I ever let drive that car. There was only four people that I said, you can take the keys and I trust you, okay? Only four people that I gave authority to drive it. When there's something that's important to us, we tend to be very cautious, very protective over who we trust, over who we give authority to when it comes to that thing. And so this morning, we're going to talk about something that is much more important than a 1966 Ford Mustang. And we're going to talk about that is something that is much more important than anything you could ever own. And we're going to discover who was trusted with that thing. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the good news, the good news of Jesus and who he is, the good news that he is Messiah, that he is not just prophet, that he is not just a good man, but that he truly is the son of God. I mean, that is the most important thing, isn't it? And we're going to look at that and also 
discover, well, who's trusted with that message? If it's so important, and it's so life-changing, so powerful, who does God say, okay, here are the keys. You get to go. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to be continuing us on in our series on Mark. So Mark chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people uh, came, from, came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Now I want to stop there. This morning we're, we're going to look at three groups. And this is the first group I want us to stop and look at. And it's the crowd. It's the crowd of people that had gathered around Jesus. Now if we take a look at what Mark is telling us here, there's a few things we can glean. Okay, first the news of Jesus and all that he was doing has spread far. Mark begins listing some of these cities and regions that Jesus is, or people are coming from to see Jesus, and it's everywhere. And so he's telling us, look, the works of Jesus, the good things he is doing, the miracles he's performing, his teachings, they've already got a far reach, and people are coming from everywhere to hear Jesus. They're coming from everywhere to see what he can do. They're coming from everywhere to get healed. And we see that this is, Jesus is used to this, used to the crowds, because Mark has, has them get a boat and be ready for them to depart. But another thing I notice as I read that is that this crowd, the people in this crowd, were desperate for what Jesus had to offer. We read here that people, I want to read this again, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. You see, the people in this crowd were desperate for Jesus. They needed healing. They wanted what what he had to offer. Now, the ironic thing is, yes, Jesus healed many, and and he was healer. But that crowd didn't realize that they needed more than just healing. That crowd didn't realize that they were in the presence of the Messiah. That crowd didn't realize that they were in the presence of the one who could save the one who could forgive sin. So yes, yes, Jesus was healer, but he was so much more. And so the crowds there, they're wanting that healing, but they don't realize they're wanting something more. They're wanting salvation. They're wanting spiritual healing. They're wanting forgiveness of sins. Now the crowd was, again, had no idea who who he was, who he truly was. We read countless accounts of Jesus being around the crowd and and people gathering and and wanting to know him. But we also read an account later on where Jesus asks, who do people say I am? Who do the crowd say I am? And his disciples answer, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. And so these people that were gathering to meet Jesus gathering and asking for healing didn't know who they were truly in the presence of didn't know who he was and it's because of that we see the same crowd that's rejoicing 
that's hurrying to meet him. It's some of these same crowds that end up calling for his execution. We have have this picture of people welcoming Jesus in on palms. We're going to celebrate Palm Sunday here in a few weeks. And getting so excited to see him, and yet it's the same people that then turn right back around and go crucify him. And so the crowd was desperate for what he had, but they didn't truly know who Jesus was. And they turned their backs on him. Now, one of the things that happens as we're reading Scripture, sometimes we can read it and see what people do and kind of go, oh, man, not me. I'm not like that, or, or we're not like that. But the world today is much more like this crowd than we realize. Much more like it than we realize. Let me show you, okay? So I am a Lakers fan, all right? That is a picture of LeBron James. I, can, I brought my keys up with me this morning. Little Lakers lanyard, okay? I know I didn't make any friends this morning. In fact, some of you went, I'm not listening to this guy anymore. Um, <clears throat> I've been a Lakers fan since I was six, okay? I'm not bandwagoner, okay? Very first team that I liked. Uh, this right here is a picture of LeBron James. Now, this, this guy is, is arguably top ten basketball players of all time, if not like top three. In fact, if you pay attention to basketball, last night he just became the second all-time leading scorer in NBA history. Crazy, okay? So when the Lakers got LeBron James, I mean, everyone went crazy. Okay, they love him. So here is a picture of him entering Staples Center. And no matter what you tell me, it's always going to be Staples Center to me, okay? So he's entering Staples Center. And look at the crowd. I mean, you've got people reaching out to touch him. You've got people taking pictures. You've probably got people calling his name. And this happens every single game. People are excited. People pay good money to get those seats for this opportunity. Now, picture this. This is an older picture. About a month ago, okay, the Lakers were playing the Pelicans. Ron runs in. The crowd's going crazy. You've got this crowd who's excited to see him. Well, about halfway through the second quarter, the Lakers are losing by over 20. Okay, it's, it's, it's a miserable game. Um, it's, it's rough to watch. And so they're losing. The crowd's still in it. And then all of a sudden, you see this guy, right? This guy right here throws a bad pass. Gets picked off. He turns it over. Now, this crowd that 30 minutes ago was so excited, cheering him on, what do you think they did? Booed him, yes. If you saw the headlines, the entire stadium in one moment turned their back on the home team. Right? Starts booing the guy that they were cheering. This very person. Look how quickly the crowd turned. Sound familiar? Right? The world around us is very quick to, to be favorable to people and then in an instant turn right back around and turn their backs on someone. But that's not all this world has in common with the crowd. As I read this, I couldn't help as, but think of the world around us. As I read how desperate these people were in this story for Jesus... For what he had to offer, I could not help but think of the world out here. I mean, just look at all that's going on right now. Look at all the hate, the violence, the things that people are doing to each other, the hurt and the pain that this world experiences. I see that. And I see people who are desperate for Jesus. People 
who need a Savior, who need a Messiah. You see, we can pass as many laws as we want. As people, we can try and mediate these things on our own. We can come up with our own solutions. But every solution by man is going to fall short. Because the things that are going on are a result of the condition of the heart, of the human condition, of that sin nature. And so there is nothing except Jesus Christ that can change that. There is no one but Jesus who can change our hearts, who can do a work in here, who can forgive sin, who can give the world what it so desperately needs. Our world is desperate for Jesus, but unfortunately, just like the crowd here, they have no idea who he truly is. I remember I was taking a course in high school, and we were, we were studying world religions. Right, we take a world religions course. And we got to Christianity, <clears throat> and we got to Jesus. And you know what the textbook read? Good man. Founder of Christianity. You see, to the world, to the crowd out there, Jesus was a good man. Maybe a prophet, a founder of religion. But they don't know the truth that he is Messiah, that he is Savior, that he is healer, redeemer, that he can give us what we truly need and what we're desperate for. And that's something only he can give. And so... Here's what we see Jesus doing with, with this message, with, with this teaching, with what he's doing. Jesus does not entrust, he does not trust the crowd, does not give the crowd authority to go and teach. We look here, and yes, Jesus heals the crowd, but the crowd doesn't truly know who he is. And so Jesus does not trust this crowd with the message of who he is. He continues. We read here in verse 11. It says, Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Now this is interesting. right? The crowd has no idea who Jesus is. Just prophet, good man, Elijah. The impure spirits, some translation read, reads demons, know the true identity of who Jesus is. They know. They know he is the Son of God. But knowledge and faith, knowledge and belief are two entirely different things. They are not the same. Not only that, but these impure spirits are battling against Jesus, right? They are in in, in exact opposition to Jesus and his message. And so when Jesus says, impure spirits, you, you are not to tell others anything. A few things are going on here. One, we see Jesus' authority being exercised. Pastor Nathan uh, last week was talking about how in, in the book of Mark, one of the themes we see is the authority of Jesus. And that Jesus has authority over everything. And so right here, we see that Jesus has authority over the spiritual over the demons. 
He's got authority. He says, you are not going to say anything. And you know what? They must obey. They have to listen. But then two, we see Jesus going, you're not going to tell anyone because you are not an accurate representation of, of who I am and of the message. Those evil spirits, those demons, were not representative of Jesus and who he is and of what he was doing and of the fact that he was Messiah. It, just imagine with me, it'd, it'd be like, um, like Obi-Wan Kenobi going to Darth Vader and being like, hey, go tell everyone about the Order of the Jedi. And they don't, they don't mesh, right? Or uh, for those who like Lord of the Rings, it'd be like Sauron, right? Going and telling everyone about Gandalf and the Fellowship, okay? They're two, two polar opposites. And so the, the messenger, these impure spirits, would not match the message. And so Jesus silences them. He says, you are not to tell anyone. Now, in this day and age, in this world, okay, as, as technology advances, as we advance as people, we tend to forget that there is a spiritual realm. Right? There's not two worlds. There is one world, and it is physical, and it is spiritual. And we tend to lose sight that there is still a spiritual part of this world. We could talk a whole other series on spiritual warfare and what goes on in that. But the truth of the matter is this right here, is that Jesus still has authority over the spiritual. He had authority then, and he has authority now because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so his authority still remains. And so we looked at the crowd and and. Sure, Jesus didn't tell them not to go say anything, but he didn't give them the keys, did he? He didn't give them a command. He didn't say, go, go tell others about what I'm doing. Go tell others about me. No, because they didn't know who he was. We read here the the impure spirits. Yeah, they knew who Jesus was, but they're actively against him. But, But they're trying to hinder him. And so Jesus tells them, you do not get the keys. You are to not tell anyone. I'm exercising my authority and saying it stops. So who is trusted with the good news that the Messiah is here? With the teachings of Jesus, who is trusted to do as Jesus has done? Well, I'm thankful that you asked, Brad. Thank you for asking that question. Let's take a look. Verse 13 says this. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, Matt, that's a hard one, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
So we see Jesus calls the disciples and he gives them the keys. He gives them the authority and the right to go out and teach as he has taught. To do as he has done. To perform miracles, to cast out demons. But there's a few things we have to realize and see that Jesus does before he sends them out. So first and foremost, we look at the disciples and we see that they are called to Jesus. They are called and they are chosen. You see, all these disciples, as we read their names, as we see who they are, they weren't called and chosen based off of merit. Right? Jesus didn't walk around going, okay, give me the best of the best. Let me, let me pick out the Pharisees. I want those guys to come be part of. No. We look at this crew that he called and that he chose, and they were actually quite the opposite. Very ordinary. And a lot of them very, very sinful. The worst of the worst. I mean, we, we read a little bit ago, and Pastor Nathan talked about Matthew, the tax collector. And back in that day, tax collectors, man, you want to talk about the cream of the crop for the worst of the worst? Tax collectors. And that's who Jesus called. And so they weren't called and chosen off of merit, but they also were not disqualified because of their past. He still called and chose them. And along those lines, he knew their names. He knew them by name. And you're probably sitting there going, well, of course he did. We just read it. How could he not know them by name? But there's a deeper truth to that. You see, to really know someone, you've got to know their name first. These aren't just a bunch of random people or acquaintances that Jesus knows. No, Jesus knew them deeply. He knew everything about them. He knew more than they knew. He was in a deep relationship with these guys. He knew them to their core, to their depths. And so they were called and chosen. Jesus knew them by name. Jesus commanded them and gave them the authority to go out. But before he did that, there was one more thing. And it's, it's a quick little sentence, and it's easy to miss. Very easy. Okay, back to, uh, to verse 14. He says this, He appointed twelve that they might be with him. That they might be with him. You see, before he sends them out, before they go out and teach, before they do as Jesus has done, before any of that can happen, the very first thing they have to do is right there, be with him. Outside of Jesus, they can do nothing, right? Jesus tells us, I am the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are sitting in here this morning, and you are a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus, you have been given the keys to the kingdom. You have been given the authority and the calling to go out and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. To go out and tell this world that is so desperate for what Jesus has to offer, you are called to be a part of that redeeming work. You are called to be a part of telling those people and introducing them to Jesus. Or as we put it, connecting people with Jesus. That is your call. Christian, that is your job. One job. 
is to do that. But before, before we teach as he taught, before we do as he has done, we have to realize a a few things. One, just like the disciples, you were called and chosen. You were called and you were chosen. You were called and chosen not because of your qualifications. You didn't earn it. You did not earn your place in, in God's kingdom. There wasn't a level and he went, oh, good enough. Yep, there you go. You're smart enough. You've accomplished enough. You've helped enough. You've earned enough. No. No merit got us there. And on the flip side, there's nothing about your past that disqualified you. Sometimes we get stuck on that. We go, yeah, okay, I'm saved, but did God, did he really choose me? Was I really called? I think I might have just skated right in. And I was on the edge there. Because if you were to look at my past and what I've done and, and all the wrong, if you looked at my sin, oh my gosh, you would say, I'm, I'm not called or I'm not chosen. I just, I was kind of like the last kid picked on the team. A mercy pick. That wasn't me, okay? All right, I don't speak from experience. But we think that. And that's not what he's saying at all. No, 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 no. God knew all that. He saw all of that. He understood that. And he chose you. He called you. And just like he chose and he called the disciples, and just like he knew the disciples, he knows you by name. This thought has just been, it's been rattling around my head for the last like month. I can't, I can't stop thinking about this thought that there are 7 billion people on this earth and that we serve a God who is so deeply personal and relational that he knows each and every single one of us, not only by name, but he knows everything about us and he is always with us. Sometimes it's so easy to think that God is back here looking down from above and just watching. Not really involved, not really invested, just kind of looking down going, well, you did good there and you really screwed that one up there and you did okay. No, you see, he knows you by name. He, he knits you together in, in your mother's womb. He formed you. He knows everything about you, every detail of your life. We serve a God who is that big who is that powerful, who is that relational, who is that all-knowing, that he knows you to your core. He created you. He made you. And so you are chosen and called, and you are known by name. And yes, you have been given the keys and entrusted with the gospel message to tell other people, but there is still one thing we have to do. In this day and age, if we're going to do that, if we're going to go share Jesus with other people, one thing we have to do, and it's, it's right there. We have to be with him. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this right there. It's the main point. We are called to work and live with him, not for him. Let me say that again. We are called to live and work with him, not for him. 
Now, that's an easy concept to mistake. In fact, working, working for him sounds good, doesn't it? I work for God. But this is a trap that I think we all fall into, and, and me being on staff at a church, it's really easy for me to fall into. I fall into a lot. You see, you can work for someone and never know them. And I think about a large company, okay? Some of you in here probably work for some large companies. Think about a large company. Let's say you're an entry-level employee or maybe you're even middle management, right? So you've got a boss and you answer to them. And that boss has a boss. And that boss has a boss. And they have a boss. And we can keep going, going, going until we reach the CEO. Now he's the head of the company. He or she, they are the head of the company. So who do you work for? Them. Right? You work for that CEO. But in a large company, do you ever really know them? No. Very few of us would know the CEO. So yes, I work for the CEO, but I don't know them. You see the difference there? See, when you work with someone, that involves relationship. That involves knowing them deeply. That involves doing as they do. That involves walking alongside them. And so just as Jesus called them that they might be with him, he calls us that we might be with him too. It's, it's not just a Sunday morning thing. It's a lifestyle. Working with and living with Jesus encompasses all of your life. It's everything you do. It's in all your goings, in all your actions, in all of you. We are called to be with him. So you are called and chosen. You are known by name. And we are to live and work with him, not for him. Now I want to close by reading um, a, few, a few quotation marks from a book we are reading with the high schoolers that talks just about this, this idea right here, about, about working and living with Jesus. It's this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Here it is right here. Shameless plug. It's a great book. It's awesome. Learning a lot. Part of what he talks about is how hurry, how busyness, is one of the biggest enemies to our spiritual growth. And you know what? I think he's right. This has caused me to look in the mirror and realize, oh man, maybe I get too busy sometimes. He talks about how sometimes we, we feel too busy for God. We feel, feel too busy to work and live with him. And so he says, here's the answer. If you're a disciple, or as he calls it, an apprentice, the answer is being with him. The answer is time with him. And so I want to read to you two quotes. One is, is kind of a, not kind of, one is a reality. And the other one is a, uh, well, how do we do that? How do we spend time with him? And it's super simple. None of this is like life changing, groundbreaking, new knowledge. But it's rarely applied sometimes. And it's oftentimes the simple things we apply that have the greatest impact. So, the, the quotes will be up on the screen, don't worry. He says this, The hard truth is that following Jesus is something you do, a practice as much as a faith. In other words, what he's reminding us is that a relationship takes action. It takes time. It's not just having faith, but it's prayer. It's reading scripture. It's time in worship. 
It's seeking him through community. See, that's active. That's something we do. And we forget that sometimes. A relationship with God, being with him, takes time. It takes effort. And then he says this. He says, following Jesus has to make it onto your schedule and into your practices or it will simply never happen. Apprenticeship to Jesus, that's what he calls discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus will remain an idea, not a reality in your life. Church, this week, my prayer for you is that you remember that you are called to live and work with Jesus, not for him. You are called to be in relationship with him. And it is only out of that relationship with him that we can then go and do the work that he has called us to do. That we can then go and disciple others. That we can then go and give this world the good news it so desperately needs. But you've got to be with him first. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team back up. And I'm going to pray and we're going to close in some worship. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day and this time. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, Lord. Lord Jesus, I just pray that we remember that the first and most important thing about discipleship to you, Jesus, about knowing you is to be with you, Lord. Lord, you have given us the keys to the kingdom. You've given us the authority and the calling to go and share the gospel with this world that so desperately needs it, Lord God. But Lord, before we do that, we've got to be with you. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that you strengthen each and every single person's relationship with you here this morning. Lord, I pray that this week we would experience life with you. That we would experience working with you, Lord God. And Lord, I pray that we live out this calling to connect people with Jesus. To go tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.